what have we been doing, Neil? So we've been we've been MIA since <coughs> since September. Yeah. What happened in September? September thirteenth, <laughs> I had a little boy. <laughs> yeah, you sure did. Congratulations. Yay. Thank you, thank you. Tell us how did this baby come about? Oh well not not don't tell us that well, part. Tell there was one day <laughs> Robert was taking a nap. <laughs> Now, what happened on the thirteenth? Like, give us the give us the play by play. We'll get the rundown. Um, so, <clears throat> sorry, a little coughing. Oh, so we're sitting there, and her mom was out. Um, you know, a few days before, just in case, because it would work out that if if we went in, you know, went into labor, that she'd be there for Robert, and if she, if we went into labor before her mom came, we were gonna stop at your house and drop off Robert. Gotcha. <laughs> Just to let you know, GV knew. Oh, okay. But, I was I would bit down. Robert's awesome. He's easy. <laughs> yeah. So, so the uh, what happened was, um, so we're sitting there and we had dinner, and then Lisa was kind of like, uh, uh, and then I was like, hmm, and then like after dinner, she's like, oh, my back's starting to hurt, and I'm like, oh, this is go time, because she hasn't had like any, like, like. Braxton Hicks, and she didn't have any, like, oh, I might be, you know, having some kind of contraction, like, at all. And we're already almost to the due date. And Robert was about 12 days early. So <clears throat> then what happened? Oh, yeah. And then she was just like, and then she went to the bathroom. And when she went in the bathroom, I looked at her mom and said, here, I'm going to go go get some stuff. And I got the little car seat in the garage, put it in the car, went upstairs, grabbed the bag, put that in the car. And then slowly but surely, Lisa's like, uh-oh. And I said, all right, let's get let's get going. So we went, checked in, we went into the triage room, and they're like, yeah, uh, you look pretty, pretty dilated. Got in a delivery room, and this is about, I don't know, less than eight, in the, less, after eight. And then we got in the other room around nine ish or something, and then the epidural came pretty quickly. Last time we had to wait longer. Last time everything took longer. This time is it like super fast? Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. So it's like here's the epidural. Then they're like, hey, we're gonna do some pushing, and then la di da. And it was Friday the thirteenth, so it was kind of cool. And I was like, hey doc, you think we could get this done by uh, midnight? Just so it's kind of cool, saying it's Friday the thirteenth. I was mostly choking, but. It kind of was working out that way. And Lisa's brother's Kevin's birthday is the 14th. Oh, yeah. So, like, the nurse kept going, oh, don't worry. I don't think you're going to share a birthday. And then, you know, before we knew it, I'm like, oh, this might just happen. And then, boom, you know, it was 1135 or 36 or something. Wow. There's the baby. Yeah. And it's like, wow, you just made it. But it was literally like, just show up and have the baby. It was so fast. Yeah. You know, I hear about all these labors that are like, Oh, they're in the hospital for 36 hours and had to walk around and line it up. And, like, Lisa's getting there and, like, you know, the baby's halfway out when we're showing up to the hospital, it feels <laughs> like. so. Yeah. Little Jason Voorhees Whitney. Jason Voorhees Whitney. Almost was his name. Yeah, that would have been awesome. <laughs> so. I don't know. If Lisa so that. Awesome. So we had that to deal with. And I think that's the day you moved into your house. Yeah. It was the same day. 
So the very same day, September 13th, GV and I moved into a new house. Because, you know, what else are you going to do on a Friday the 13th? Have babies and move into new houses. Yeah, so you had to deal with all that. I had the baby. And then um, then back when we were like, okay, let's start recording and stuff. And then I was getting sick. Mm-hmm. And then the one day it would have worked, I was like dead tired. I think I fell asleep at 8. Nice. Yeah, yeah, it's just been uh, one thing right after another, but we're we're still here, and uh, we've got we've got stuff, we've got stuff, we've got topics. Yeah, we do have a topic. Yeah, we got topics. Uh, what are you drinking? Um, I am drinking an Alaskan Amber Ale. Nice. Do you know it's, anything uh, about it? Do I know anything about it? Um, well, the brand is Alaska Alaskan. And this is just their ale, their amber ale style. Is it good? I assume they make these in Alaska. Yep, Juno, the capital. Juno, so Juno, the cow. What? The capital. Oh, the capital. I heard cow. <laughs> so I'm drinking. Um, I'm drinking water. water. Yeah, uh, great value. Um, purified drinking water. It came from uh, came from Walmart. And uh, I'm pretty sure it was bottled and distributed by Walmart Stores, Inc. in uh, uh, Bentonville, Arkansas, in case you guys were curious. And the ingredients is purified water. So, so there you go. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm dry until Christmas Eve, except for on Sundays for my day of celebration. And this is because? Because I got a, uh, um, a group of guys were doing... Um, Exodus 90. Have you, you've heard of Exodus 90, yeah? Yeah, but then I tuned it out because it involved too much praying and fasting. and <laughs> There is a lot of praying and fasting and, and asceticisms, and it's a, it's a little bit intense. Did you ever, did the, uh, was um, Vincent or anybody trying to get you to do it? He talked about it. Vincent was saying this, oh, I'm starting this thing. Yeah. Did he tell you some of the ascetical practices that you're supposed to do? Mm. No, I kind of got the gist of what it was, and I was like, well, I don't think I'm in that, that uh, frame of mind at this time. Right, yeah, it would have been a terrible idea with having a new baby and all that stuff. You don't need the extra stress on your body. You need to enjoy. You're at, a, you're at a feasting time. And I was like, I need to be in a fasting time. My whole goal was like, I feel like um, uh, for me, because I work at a church, the prayer can be very much part of my job. And so I found myself being very easily swayed into like okay well i'm at home and you know praying is part of my job and i don't want to work right now and so it was like ugh, making my prayer feel more like work than it was actually communion with god and so my goal was to maybe do something like this to liven it up a little bit and so far so good i mean i'm on i don't even know what day i'm on i think i'm hold on let me look real quick there's a there's a calendar in the um in the app that they give you that uh keeps track of what days you're on I'm on day 27, 27 of 90. Wow. So, so good three weeks in, almost four weeks. Yeah. So yeah, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, uh, it's pretty intense. Uh, I don't do it perfectly, and I think that's, I think that kind of the point is a part of having the group is that you know you don't do it perfectly, so you kind of walk with a group of guys to mm. encourage and and pick you back up whenever you whenever you fail in different areas and stuff like that. So yeah. I recommend it, but also um, I 
Don't know if I recommend this for married people. It just so happens that everybody that's in our guys group that's doing this is married and has children all about the same age. Uh, and I we are we run into issues that I don't think single guys would run into on a lot of this stuff. Like um, a big part of this are the of the asceticisms is like don't watch TV, don't go on social media, um, and that kind of stuff. And then all the wives are like. But I love TV and I love social media. And does that mean you're not going to hang out with me when I'm watching TV, or that you're not going to see the post and like the things and, you know, that stuff? So yeah. Well, I I don't get to watch a lot of TV anyway nowadays. Yeah, yeah. But I just started to this weekend. I got to watch a few Flash episodes, so I was happy. New ones. Yeah. Speaking of which, two new ones. Going into the comic corner, have you seen that the the, um, the trailer for Hush? Uh, I never saw the trailer, but I saw that it advertised. Okay, I want to see that. It looks good. I saw it today. I I saw I saw the the copy not today the other day at Best Buy. Do you know anything about it? Yeah, I read the book. Oh, you did read the book. Yeah, yeah, I got the issues. Do you want to give a Neil's comic? corner on the issues oh i can't remember <laughs> that's okay maybe the next one you'll give a neil's comic corner it's about 30 yeah i'd have to reread it or something it's a you know it's a it's like a 14 year old story or some 15 year old story that's awesome it looks awesome <laughs> Sorry about that. Like, I, it, yeah it's pretty cool what, what i do recall that it was a thing is it had a lot of uh uh who's who kind of thing in it like it was very the character's name is hush and he's out to get like Batman and stuff, but like in it, like everybody's in it, like the Riddler's in it, Killer Croc's in it, and like um, Poison Ivy controls Superman. You know, she, oh, that's so that's kind of cool. Yeah. And then uh, Clayface is in it. And also, what's cool is there's a part where uh, where uh, the Jason Todd Robin, the one that died, comes back. And and you're like, what the what? Like, how is he back? And he had a cool costume, and he was like a bad guy. And yeah, because he was the um, the Red Hood, wasn't he? Yeah. See, this is before the Red Hood. Okay. So so spoiler, you know, kind of spoiler alerts. You find out that it's not Jason Todd. It was uh, um, it was. Clayface making a Jason Todd kind of thing. That makes sense. But then they had the Red Hood stuff come out later, you know, about a year or so later. And then he's back. And it was like, how is he back? And and actually, the way he came back was after that, there was this thing called um, Infinite Crisis. And it was a big, you know, alternate or this big reality shifting event kind of uh, a capper to the crisis of on infinite earth that happened in the 80s so what happened was apparently they were able to screw up time so that he came back to life neat so that's why he was there for the the red hood right okay so and i think now in uh what's it called um and re- retroactively they said it wasn't clayface it was him in hush so they're just kind of putting so, it back in there because everybody wanted that like they, they was it because of the storyline that they wanted Jason Todd back, and that's where the Red Hood was born from, or kind of because everybody was really excited about it. Right. They're like, "Whoa, that's a huge twist!" Yeah, yeah. And then so they said, 
wow, they really liked that idea that Jason Todd came back, even though it wasn't him. So maybe we should have him come back. And I think Judd Whitting came up with the whole Red Hood thing because the Red Hood was the original disguise of the Joker. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, pre-Joker days, he was the Red Hood. Did you... So... You probably haven't got a chance to yet, but uh, um, the Joker film... I haven't seen... I haven't seen Joker. Yeah, yet. I haven't seen it yet either. Dang. It 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 also doesn't grab me enough that I want to go out of my way to see it. Oh, really? I think it looks interesting. It does look interesting, but there's something about it. Maybe it's just it's too 70s Scorsese to me oh. to be like, I don't know. That's not the way my Joker is, but it's very interesting, but it was just kind of like, I don't know. So I'm like, I will see it. I just... The way it is that I can't, like, when I used to see a movie every week for, you know, the summer, you know, now it's like a movie every, like, three months. It's like, oh, right. i got to be sparing. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I get that. Like, when we first had kids, like, before we had kids, Steve and I used to go to the movies all the time. And then um, after we had kids, we're like, Duh, you know, this, there's a lot of work in order to go along here. And movies now cost us more because we have to pay a sitter. And uh, so how much do we really want to see this particular film? And so it just became, yeah. it became like the only movies we would go see were the Marvel releases whenever the big ones were releasing. Um, and that was basically it. Like there wasn't much more we were doing. Right. Cause I remember you guys asking like, okay, between this one and this one, yeah. <laughs> what's worth getting a babysitter? For exactly. <laughs> yeah. So. so cool. So uh, yeah. Yeah. What's our topic for today then? Um, what was their topics? You told scripture. Uh, we wanted to do the development of scripture or why why Catholic Bibles are bigger. Uh, oh yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah. So why? Catholic- Let's table the other one for later. Okay, cool. So Catholic Bibles being bigger, yes, they are. I really should have a Bible in front of me, but I don't. But I have a whole. This is also the other nice thing is I'm in my office now rather than in the living room. And so I have all my books here, so I can literally just walk over and grab a Bible if I need to, and I probably do. So I'm going to walk to that bookshelf over there and grab a Bible. Hold on one second. David is walking to the um, bookcase, but he's off screen, so I can't see him. I should have done something funny here, but he'll probably edit this out. And we're back. (laughs) Yes, we are back, and I have a Bible. So um, this is just a just as a Catholic um, study Bible, NAB, which can you have an NAB study Bible? I don't know. We can, I guess. But um, anyway, yes, Catholic Bibles are bigger. I actually uh, ran into this question a lot from people lately um, for whatever reason. Um, I think maybe because the fall RCIA courses, there's a lot of people that are kind of new to the faith. They didn't realize that... Um, Catholic Bibles are bigger. And then also in my move, um, I came across a, uh, a Bible that my parents had given me. And I looked at it and it said um, uh, May 1st uh, have, uh, for 1991 for my first communion. I was like, oh, neat. And so I didn't realize I actually had the date um, written down somewhere because I didn't remember what it was. And uh, they gave me that Bible and it happens to be a Protestant Bible. So... <laughs> <laughs> well, it was probably from your dad. <laughs> well, he wasn't Protestant whenever he got it, so. But um, force of habit. Yeah, force of habit. <laughs> it's from the south. Yeah, you know, you gotta have that. Uh, you gotta have that Bible in there, right? 
Um, yeah, so, and then I got a lot of questions as to, like, well, what what's in the Catholic Bible that's not in the, like, the Jewish Bible or the uh, Protestant Bible, and then, like, why... Maccabees. The, what's that? Maccabees. Maccabees, yeah. Yeah, and why Catholic Bibles in general are are bigger than Protestant Bibles and... Uh, font. And, Font, yeah, that's that could be. You know, we do have the, you know, we have a lot of old people who read the Bible, and so we need the larger, larger fonts. Um, yeah, but there are seven books that are not included in the Protestant Old Testament, or the current Jewish Old Testament. Do you know what they are? Can you guess them? You know two of them. Um, Tobit. Tobit. Yep. And that's it. I got three out of four. So Tobit, you got Tobit, and you got first and second Maccabees. Then you also got Judith, huh? And you got Baruch. And who else do we have here? Um, Judith, Baruch, first and second Maccabees. We already said Tobit. Uh, who am I? Who am I missing? Oh, the, I forgot about the 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 wisdom literature ones. So the Book of Wisdom. Oh. And uh, it, oh, really? Yep. And um. Uh, Sirach, Ecclesiasticus. Oh, Sirach. Yeah. yeah so. Um, these aren't in the, the the current Jewish. No, they aren't actually. Text? So the way the Jewish number, uh, the way the Hebrew Bible is numbered, actually, they only have twenty four books in their Bible, um, and so it's actually numbered differently than like the Protestant Old Testament. So the Protestant Old Testament has uh, what thirty nine books or something like yeah thirty nine books in their Old Testament. Um, and then the Jewish Old Testament is the exact same Old Testament as they have, but they number them differently. They number them as 24 books, um, which is interesting because so Josephus is, is I think, the first Jewish, Jewish, Jewish historian to kind of number, to give us around that number. He actually gave us a number 22 books for the, uh, um, for the Hebrew Old Testament or the, the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, one book for every letter of the Hebrew alf- alphabet. So he left out two books, and people kind of debate which ones they were. Um, I think it was Esther, Esther and uh, Daniel, but that's for various other reasons. But um, yeah, so the 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 Protestant Bibles don't have those books, um, and they number them differently. Like like the Hebrew Bible, they take the twelve minor prophets and call it one book. Um, first and second Samuel is one book. First and second Kings is one book. First and second Chronicles is one book. And so, um, by combining some of these books that, that, so the Protestants have separately, they count, they count it as 24 versus, um, 39. It makes, it makes sense. Yeah. And then they also order it differently. So in the, in the Jewish Bible, you have the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, which is five. what we have. And then, um, and then, and then they go into what they call the um, the Nevi'im or the uh, the historical books, and in that um, they include like uh, uh, the the regular the, the major historical figures, Joshua, Judges, and um, Samuel and Kings, and then some of the minor historical writings. And then they from there they go to the Ketuvim. Now the Ketuvim is um, is everything else. So the the historical books, the ne- the, ne- the Nevi'im has the um, uh, has the um, what's it called in it the um, uh, the prophets in that part. So in the in the actual historical writings, that's where you find the prophets. And then in the uh, um, 
what's it called? The other writings. Let me pull this up here real quick. Do you want to have live? We cancel. We don't want to. Sorry, hold on. I just realized I have a computer in front of me, so I can actually pull this up just so I don't forget. I made a whole chart. I should have probably sent you this chart, but I was using it for the class that I'm also teaching, so. Great, now these people can get that class for free. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? So, um, ooh, I just tapped the thing. Dang it. So, um, what's it called? Uh, did you, uh, like, do you have any experience with, like, a regular, like, a real Hebrew Bible or just the Protestant Old Testament stuff? Um, heck, I don't even think I have experience with the Protestant one. Oh, really? Not that I know of. Because, I mean, you know, the Old Testament's a little, uh, you know, out of my wheelhouse at a lot of times. So it's like some of them I might not notice. But I think pretty much most of my books I've had are all Catholic um, Bibles. And then, you know, doing a lot of retreats and stuff when it's like, here's a New Testament, you know, because they're cheaper and easier to hand out. Oh, that makes sense. So I've had a lot of those that you could just get. And... uh, what was the other thing too? I am a little surprised that the Hebrew one is is shorter. I mean, in I mean, not just because of the numbering, but yeah. like I always thought there were more books, but there were more books. I just guess they were more apocryphal books, right? Which I thought I thought some of those apocryphal books would have been counted as Hebrew books, but not into the Catholic books, right? Yeah, and so. Um in the in the 16th century, whenever there started to be this this dispute amongst what belongs in the Christian canon, um, they developed these these words to describe the differences: um, the protocanonical and the deuterocanonical. And so, the protocanonical were um, books that were um, that have always been accepted by Christians everywhere as scripture. And then the protocanonical were, I'm sorry, the deuterocanonical were considered, uh, they, felt they literally means a second canon, not like there was two canons running side by side, but the second canon um, in the sense that they, they have been disputed in in, uh, um, in Christendom. So their, their authenticity was disputed for whatever reason. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like they've been around, but... But not everybody there were was like people who were like, I'm not sure about that. Yeah, yeah. But then they got close enough to be considered. Yeah, exactly. And then, um, so they didn't, they, they didn't make all the checks. They're just venerated. Right, right. So even like, um, even within the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew uh, first century Palestine stuff, there was there was not like a set canon. Like uh, um, a lot of a lot of times, you'll hear traditions saying like, oh yeah. Because of uh, you know you hear in, in uh, Psalms where it says like um, the the law the um, the writings uh, the law and the writings and they're like oh see there was already a, a canon kind of in scripture or you hear um, when Jesus says the law the prophets and the Psalms and, and then um, people will say that you know early in first century Palestine they were already pointing to a, a an actual canon so that's a lot of times what you'll get in like the defense of um, Protestants using the um, the Hebrew canon um, uh, for their for their scriptures versus the the Catholic canon, uh, and so they're like, oh, see, there was an already a canon in in, um, in circulation, but in, re- in reality, there wasn't. So, um, 
So in unofficial, yeah, exactly. It, so it, the way that this worked is there were actually two competing canons um, around the time of the first and second century for the for Hebrew scriptures. So um, you had uh, the, these group of Jews that have come to be known like the Palestinian Jews areas. Um, they developed kind of their their canon. Now, one thing that was always set, and we can point as early back to like um, Ezra and Nehemiah, like the the construction of the second temple like you know how the um the first temple in the old testament was destroyed um by the babylonians in and 586 or 587 and mm. um and then ezra and nehemiah were given permission to come back in and rebuild it um years later do you know, you know the story um i know about the destruction i don't remember i don't know when the second temple was built okay so after the time of exile um uh, Ezra got got permission to come down into uh, Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, um, and with him he brought uh, um, the Torah. And some people, some scholars think that he didn't just have the Torah with him, but he also had even the Book of Joshua. So he had potentially six books that were held as um, as canon as early as as then, right? And so, um, so the the Torah itself was was a solid canon for years and for 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 hundreds of years before um the development of the actual um the actual hebrew canon and so what ends up happening from the torah then all these other sacred writings of the jews they were kind of regarded as um some sacred or not not necessarily as sacred as as the as um as a torah like torah was was like the canon par excellence if you will and everything was measured according to that and so in the first century you have all these divisions of people and uh, of the jews and holding holding smaller or wider canons like the pharisees for or the sadducees for example um they held only the pentateuch or only i said pentateuch but you know the the books of moses the the torah um pentateuch just means the the five books um the first five books uh, the the Torah they held just the Torah as canon and so that's why they didn't have any sense of um, resurrection of the dead um, because right. the Torah doesn't have really any allusions to that other than maybe you could point to like Genesis chapter twenty two where um, Abraham kind of gives a hint that he believes in a resurrection and that's why Jesus actually makes that appeal to the Sadducees. Um, uh, and he doesn't pick any other part of scripture like he doesn't go to maccabees or he doesn't go to um uh any like he doesn't go to the psalms or any anything like that whenever they ask him about the question of resurrection he goes to abraham um and so because you know it looks like abraham believed in a resurrection so it's just interesting stuff um and then the th it seems very Go ahead. No, go ahead. Seems very uh, Torah or nothing at the time. That's the way I always think. Yeah, for Sadducees, absolutely. And then the Pharisees, though, um, they accepted a much wider canon. And it, it actually ends up being the Palestinian canon is primarily the canon developed by the Pharisees. Because what ends up happening in, in Palestine, in first century Palestine, is um, uh, it, there, there becomes this civil war. The, the other group that's there called the Zealots that, uh, um, that just uh, Josephus talks about. They um, tried to attack Rome, basically, which is a dumb idea. Right. And so um, they, uh, their idea is that under this oppression, uh, we need a messiah to come, and the messiah will be a military messiah. 
that tears down Rome and reestablishes Israel, right? And so right. Um, they try to attack, to take on Rome, and they fail miserably. And in 70 AD, as part of one of the rebellions with their, their with their uh, would be Messiah um, leading them, uh, the the, ta- the the temple is destroyed and it's never rebuilt again. So that's uh, the the right. second. It's only the like the wall. Yes, exactly the Wailing Wall. So if you heard of the Wailing the Wall, the Wailing Wall is all that's left. Exactly. So it's is that Western Wall or something. Oh, I don't I don't know. I'd have to I'd have to look that up. If only okay. there was such a no. I'm just <laughs> yeah. No. Um, yeah, the Wailing Wall is the only wall that remains. And then in 135, um, the Zealots uh, take another stand against the Romans. And in this uh, um, stronghold, they get pushed back to the stronghold of Masada. Um, and they get starved out and killed. Um, uh, and there's no more Zealots after that. And so that, right. that particular effect of Judaism is gone. And then the one after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD... The sect of uh, Judaism that was the Sadducees is gone because they were extraordinarily tied to sacrificial worship and the temple, and they were the. They yeah, were, so they had nothing to do. Yeah. They had no. I got no place else to exactly. go. Exactly, and then you have uh, the other group was the Essenes that were like, "Oh, we're going to live in the desert, um, and be holy that way, and and uh, and drive in righteousness." And they had a they had a wide canon in 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 there. You, you'll um, uh, the Essenes held the Alexandrian canon, which is what we'll look at here in a minute but um but they all died out because primarily in the S- the Essene community the the Qumran community the, the, the where the Dead Sea Scrolls were um uh. that community was primarily celibate men so <laughs> obviously they're going to die out they, they bred them <laughs> yeah. out or anti-bred them out <laughs> so they they died out uh, as well and so the the sect of or the primary sect of Judaism that remained was the Pharisaic sect, and they remained because they were already developing um, the ways to worship outside of temple, right? The the um, the synagogue worship, right? Being able to uh, preach and teach inside synagogue, and then go to temple to worship. Temple was still the central place for worship and sacrifice for the Jews. But they still had um, ways to um, love God and grow in God and um, be holy outside of the temple um, in in your synagogues, and so uh, there there's there's this supposed synod uh, called Jamnia that happened in ninety, but there's not a whole lot of historical evidence for this synod that that happened for the Jews, um, but somewhere around the first century or second century. Um, the Palestinian canon began to be more solidified, and it became solidified in um, in what they what they kept right, and so what they what they ended up keeping were the books of um, that were Jewish in antiquity. So any of the maybe later books uh, um, coming after the Second Temple or coming into the three hundreds or the two hundreds BC. Um, they weren't take, taking any of those books. Uh, and so that's why um, some of the canons may or may not include books like Esther or Daniel in them because those are kind of later written books. Um, and then the other thing that was a criteria was it being primarily written in the Hebrew language. Now, some of the stuff that they have have parts that are in Greek or parts that are in Aramaic, um, but the primary language of the books that they kept were were written in Hebrew, 
and even the parts that that were preserved maybe from Aramaic or from from Greek were probably still written originally in Hebrew. So that anything that wasn't that, they threw out. Um, so you contrast that now with the Alexandrian canon. Now the Alexandrian canon was um, so you, you know the um, uh, Ptolemy the second and in Egypt he started a, a library in Alexandria. You know the story. The Alexandrian Library. Yeah, you know, history. The one that burned down. The one that burnt down, right? So he starts this library. And so um, the story goes, what was this, like 3rd century B.C. or 4th century B.C.? Do you remember? Oh, I, I, oh, geez, I didn't even realize it was that. Wait, when did it, was it destroyed then? I can't remember. I thought that was closer to. Maybe it, maybe it was 2nd century like, B.C.? I was, yeah. Okay, it was. Sometime early, we probably should have prepared this, but anyway, we're just going on the fly. This is yeah. This people are gonna. This is gonna be the least downloaded episode because <laughs> they're yelling at. <laughs> You're getting all yeah, your years wrong because we have so many people who are like, "Don't you know this?" Yeah, I know, right? But anyway, the, so they're developing this library, and there's there's a story that goes on that um, uh, that they wanted that that Ptolemy heard about the the scriptures, uh, the Hebrew scriptures, the sacred writings of the Jews, and he wanted the um, it to be part of his library, and so he invited Palestinian Jews to come in and interpret it and to translate it into Greek, and uh, to be installed in his library. And so the story goes is that six drew, six Jews from each of the um, twelve tribes of Israel were sent down from Palestine into Alexandria to make this translation. And so 72 Jews, right? And so they go down into Alexandria, and uh, the story goes is that for seven days they um, were asked questions, and they responded to questions, and everybody was in awe of their wisdom. And then they were sent to an island due to the translation, and they worked through to translate the, from the Hebrew to the Greek um, all, the, all the, the sacred books of, of the Hebrew scriptures. And um, the story goes that they translated for 72 days, and then when they came back, um, they, they read the scriptures and they presented it to uh, the other, other Jewish leaders who were there and the Greeks who were there, and everybody marveled at how, um, how accurate of a translation it was from the Hebrew to the Greek. Um, and it became this, this particular um, translation became known as the Septuagint, right? The 70 in Greek is the, is the name of it. It's the translation of the 70. Uh, and so you'll you'll see that uh, that like if you start doing biblical study or whatever you'll say that this is this is the quotation from the Septuagint or whatever. Um, and so the other tra- other traditions of that say that the seventy two that were there um, they all individually translated the scriptures uh, and all came out with the exact same translation miraculously. Um, or that uh, other traditions are like there are, there were Jews there independently translating. Um, and eventually, just organically, the the scriptures came about in the in the Greek at the time. But whatever, either way, it happened. The the, the Septuagint got installed at some point in the in the uh, Alexandria, and it became widely used as um, the kind of like a wider uh, uh, source because a lot of the language, a lot of the popular language uh, for uh, academia became Greek. And so, um, as you, as for example, Paul, Paul knew how to speak in Greek, and then, uh, then when you get now to the New Testament, there are um, three hundred and fifty, I think, direct quotes from the Old Testament, in included in the New Testament, 
like they're word-for-word quotes, and 300 of the 350 are quoted from the Septuagint. So when Jesus is quoting scripture, he quotes the Septuagint himself. So that's uh, one of the reasons. And so the things that were included in the Septuagint, so the Septuagint was in Greek uh, and didn't have, uh, there was no fear of the Hellenistic influence, were these books that were all left out of the Palestinian canon, which all happened to have been written in Greek, right? And even um, in, oh, we didn't mention this before, but um, our book of Daniel is longer. Um, it has the, uh, uh, it has Bell and the Dragon, um, the Song of the Three, um, the Three Brothers, and um, uh, Susanna, right? And then uh, our book of Esther is longer. Um, so they, because of the, because the Greek portions that were cut out of the other ones, or, or maybe the Greek portions that were added into um, Daniel or um, or Esther, depending on how you look at it. But and then so whenever um, the early church began putting together the canon, it was just like okay, so so the New Testament was was debated first, and that's that like like if you want to talk about proto canonical or deuto canonical, um, some modern scholars would would say like there was a lot of debate around the Book of James and the Book of Hebrews. Um, because especially the book of Hebrews, because the authorship was, um, suspect. Nobody kind of knew who wrote it. Um, and we still don't know who wrote it. <laughs> uh, and so they were, they were like, okay, so since we don't know if it's uh, apostolic in origin, can we, can we include it in the, in the canon? So there was a lot of debate and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, um, the early church fathers held like the the Septuagint canon and and the Deuterocanonicals in the canon as uh, sacred. A lot of them, uh, but a lot of them didn't include it in like their canonical list. Like um, I don't think Origen included it in his. Or um, I know Jerome. Like even Jerome, he was not big on including the Deuterocanonical because we're talking fourth century now. So you, there was clearly already. Um, two different Old Testament canons floating around. And there was the Septuagint one and there was the Palestinian one. And so Jerome is like, well, but all the other Jews are using this one. And so why would we use this one? And then, you know, the church gets together in a synod in Rome in the fourth century, I think it's 382 or something like that. Um, Pope Damasius, I think. Damasus? One of these popes starts with a D. Uh, <laughs> He holds this synod in Rome, and um, they put down the canon as we have it, as as the canon is now. Um, and then, uh, and then every synod that that addresses the canon from then uh, addresses that exact same canon all the way up to Trent. And there was the, um, the I know there there was Rome. Um, I think one of the Constantinople ones did. Um, uh, Florence did, I know, uh, and of course Trent. And I think there was another one that was in there that did too. But all these, all these other. I, I thought it all started out with Hippo. Hippo was after Rome, actually. So, so yeah, that was that was uh-huh. one of the other ones that I probably should have mentioned. Because um, what when was Hippo? Three ninety something? Three ninety three? Yeah, it was a late late third fourth. Yeah, century. so I think I think Hippo was three ninety three, but Rome uh, under Damasius was um, three eighty. Two, if I'm not mistaken, or 381. Oh, just to let you know, the library was constructed somewhere between 285 and 246 BC. Okay, so 3rd century BC, yeah. I couldn't yeah. remember. Um, well, then wait. So wait. So is that when 
So when did they start coming up with all the cannon? Was it the Roman Council? What for the for the cannon for us? Yeah, for like the Bible. Yeah, whenever they needed to actually put down the cannon, that's what that's when it was. Before then, it was a lot of just like floating around of books, and uh, different churches were di- using different bo- books. Like for example, like the the Marcion um, uh, canon, hmm. especially his New Testament canon. He oh, let's see if I remember this. He held one gospel only, and I think it was Matthew's gospel that this is like, he's like, this is the only gospel that's gospel. And then he held almost, oh man, I can't remember exactly, and somebody else who's a scholar is probably yelling at this, but he held just a couple of other New Testament books, and that was it. Like, he had this really strict, like, nothing else is God, nothing else is inspired by God. Nothing else is God. Exactly. Nothing else is inspired by except God. Except for these three books. Except for these. That's it. And, and then, um, and people were like, no, that's stupid, right? And then, so, um, the, the whole point of the Synod and then the Council of Hippo afterwards were to try and figure out, okay, there are all these, um, people are teaching that there's all these different books that are in New Testament and all these different books that are, are not in, inspired by God and all these different Old Testament books that are inspired by God and all these Old Testament books that aren't inspired by God. Uh, and so uh, the idea was, okay, so we need to get together as church because Jesus didn't establish a table of contents and this is our problem. If only Jesus established a table of contents, then we wouldn't have this issue. But instead, Jesus chose to establish a church. And he promised to be with that church and to guide that church infallibly. So we need to gather as church. And we need to pray, and we need to fast, and we need to figure out um, where God is leading us to to point to the inspired books. Which bo- which books does God want to have um, included in the scriptures that are, that are considered... Um, inspired by him and necessary for our salvation. So they took a bunch of criteria in place. So they took like, okay, so what can we see that's used in in um, in, litur- in liturgy? What's being read in worship? What's being reverenced? Um, what has a connection to an apostle or, um, or a direct successor of an apostle? Um, and so some of the books that uh, were, were like that, that didn't get included, was like, for example, the Didache. The Didache is probably uh, as... Oh, de- depending on how people date John's Gospel, I, th- I usually favor an earlier date for John's Gospel. But the Didache was probably about as old as John's Gospel, um, and yet it's not included in the Scriptures, and um, it's uh, because it, it, the content of it wasn't necessarily uh, about the the nature of Christ and the nature of salvation. Um, it was more like. Didache means the teachings, right? It was more like how-tos. It was what the early church was doing. Um, it has a d- description of how to baptize, that kind of that kind of stuff. So it was more like rubrics than it was uh, salvation history. And so stuff like that, or the or the um, shepherd shepherd of Hermes, or or various letters of the early church fathers. They're like, okay, well, this is this has been used in liturgy and used in worship, uh, and it's valuable. But it's but we're not going to call it inspired because it doesn't maybe have a direct connection connection to an apostle, or a direct connection mm-hmm. to um, or a directly relevant to the gospel itself, the person of Jesus, right? It might just be peripheral. Um, and so, like you know, you have all these other writings that are helpful, but not but not necessary to include in the canon, and that's basically how it happened. Nine thirty or. 393. 393 for Hippo? Yep. Well, there you go. My memory's not too terrible, right? Uh, 
No, it's not. You know, I had a lot of these dates memorized. Do you really? Oh, and the library was just, they were talking about it, burn, not burning down, but, uh, you know, being, the Caesar set it on fire. Right. But it, it wasn't completely destroyed then. But I knew it was around the time of the first century. Okay. So I just didn't know when, and I didn't get to when it's exactly gone. Huh. Well, there you go. So I'll look at it. Huh. So all that to say is, like, I think it's really interesting that uh, um, that solo scriptura became a thing to me um, because it's difficult to say to say that uh, we have our faith on scripture alone when the early church didn't know what scripture was and needed the um, guidance of the church herself that that in order to understand what exactly is scripture you see what i'm saying like how does that work which part having scripture how can how can we hold or how can anybody hold scripture alone if um the earliest christians disagreed on what scripture was and needed the church in order to define scripture oh i see you see what i'm saying <clears throat> oh yeah, no, that's because it's it's a it's a what's the word? It's a paradox kind of thing. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, and it's like when people were like, "Oh, I only follow Jesus's teachings on following the scripture," and I go, "Yeah, but none of that scripture was written when Jesus was teaching." You know, when you got the Bible thumper kind of people, right? And I'm like, well, then you should only be using the Old Testament because that's what he's exactly, talking about. Yeah, yeah. Whenever the Old Te- or the New Testament, whenever you say, um, look back at the scriptures, or all scripture is good for teaching, reproof, and all that, you know, they're talking about the Old Testament because they don't think that they're writing scripture right now. So right, and I don't, and I know God knows what's going to happen. Exactly. But yeah, I don't think that's what he was saying. Right. Right, and I think that's the brilliance of of the the revelation of Christ, right? Because <clears throat> ultimately, when we talk about divine revelation, um, the fullness of revelation is Jesus. The Word of God is not a book, but it's a person. It's it's Christ, and Jesus is the perfect um, fulfillment of all of revelation because He is God. And what we when we mean what we say when we mean revelation is God coming to meet man, right? And so, since Jesus is the perfect. Um, fullness of that then that's ultimately what we mean by divine revelation we mean jesus and so in in the wisdom of god rather than establishing um a table of contents like he didn't say like, okay so here's your old testament and these guys are going to write a new testament and that's going to be your canon um instead of right. doing that he said i'm going to establish my church and I, I'm going to establish my church, and the Holy Spirit will be with her. And no matter how um, jacked up it gets, the gates of hell will never prevail against it. It'll be preserved, so that way you can continue to unfold the one perfect revelation, who is Christ. And, you know, that's the only way we could have done it is is if Jesus had established a church to help us dive deeper into the mystery of who He is. He needed actual people to do that, not um, not writings. So, yeah. Right. 
there you go. That's your that's works. Your, that's your works. There you go. So if you could sum up why we have the extra books, why? how can you just say that in right. two minutes? So if I could sum up why we have the extra books is because the church led us to uh, that particular canon and God, God drives the church, right? God preserves the church from error. And I know that uh, um, in, in logic and philosophy, the argument from authority is the weakest argument because you say because so-and-so said so. But whenever that so-and-so is God guiding his church, then you know you pretty much you pretty much take that authority. And the whole point of Jesus establishing an authority is so we would have an authentic authority, right? A real um, and tangible authority. And if you want to look at like the... Um, uh, the organicness of how it came about it actually makes sense the the books that were included and all that stuff so yeah grace and nature mm.